Why don't they get it? Why don't consumers just accept the science when we present it to them? People in agriculture and food ask that all the time relative to resistance to technology among the broader consuming public. I'm Mike von Massow, and this is Food Focus, the podcast. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Maya Goldenberg, an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Guelph. She thinks about how we come to accept knowledge in our lives and how we justify our beliefs. I thought her work on vaccine hesitancy had direct application to the food industry, so we sat down for a conversation. We talk, among other things, about why people are hesitant to accept scientific evidence. From there, we talk about how we can address this hesitancy. Before we get into the episode, I want to say thanks for downloading and listening. We're seeing growth in our audience, and we really appreciate it. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving us a review or sharing, as it helps others find it. Now... Let's go straight to my conversation with Maya Goldberg. Well, thanks, Maya, for taking the time today. I, I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. So, how does a philosopher come to start thinking about vaccination and vaccine hesitancy? Well, I, I came at the issue first as a philosopher of medicine, so yeah. I did my dissertation in an area of um, philosophy of medicine that's called medical epistemology. So epistemology is the branch of philosophy that examines knowledge claims. How do we move from mere belief to actual knowledge? How do we justify our beliefs and actually call them knowledge or, or, or evidence? Um, because packed into anything that we call even scientific evidence is a host of assumptions about what is true and what what makes um, what makes a claim uh, justified, not just to me, but that everyone else should believe it too. So there's a there's a large area and a long history of philosophical work on those very issues around knowledge. Medical epistemology looks specifically around knowledge claims in medicine. So I've done work on the evidence based medicine. My my, my yeah. dissertation is is on that, looking at it as a philosopher, saying you know what are what are the assumptions and values that are packed into this movement that claims to be teaching uh, healthcare workers and researchers the standards of, of best evidence? Because anything that gets packaged as best evidence is going to be eliminating other forms of knowledge or evidence that don't, don't stand up to it. So in the case of evidence-based medicine, it was a regard of uh, randomized controlled trials as the best source of healthcare evidence, and as soon as that was launched as a as a um, as a way of approaching medical research and healthcare practice, there were obvious problems that came up with it. Some of it ethical, some of it epistemic. Things like the work that qualitative research offers and the knowledge that it offers gets undervalued. Um, that's that's really true. That is yes, and um, in in some areas of of medicine, that's appropriate. Like uh, evidence-based uh, medicine uh, was created by people working in internal medicine. And the kind of questions that they were looking at were often best suited to randomized controlled trials, especially if they're double-blinded, mm-hmm. placebo-controlled. However, the movement tried to expand this view to, to capture other areas of healthcare work. And the early critics were quick to point out that some areas of research have questions that are best answered by other means. The, mm-hmm. the, kind, of, the kind of rigor that randomized controlled trials introduces to a research problem 
also um, allows other forms of, let's say, bias and um, alternative interpretation to go unnoticed. So, mm-hmm. so that actually raises a lot of philosophical questions about what counts as knowledge, um, especially in the context of patient care, um, for the very reason that patients rarely fit the profile of uh, the subjects in a randomized yeah. controlled trial. You know, most of the drugs are tested on fairly young usually male participants who don't have other, uh, don't have, let's call them confounders, like old age, other conditions. The actual users of medical drugs are are not like that. They're older, they've got comorbidities. So it it creates um, practical problems and that are not addressed when you insist this is the benchmark, this is it. That's, it's, it, that, that's, re- that's really interesting because one of the challenges we have in the food and agriculture industry is the same thing. You know, these trials often much more controlled so that you are focusing on a specific thing that you're interested in. And again, how replicable is that in the field? And then there are also a lot, a lot of things where, uh, where we don't have good controlled trials on things like safety and, and things like that, that that create some real concerns for some consumers. So to me, it strikes it strikes me, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation, is the parallels between how people think about medical evidence and specifically in the context of vaccines and this consternation, some people say, you know, why don't they get it? Right? Why why don't they get it? The evidence is clear. And, and whether that's vaccines or, or any variety of new technologies, why don't people get it? Um, well, why people don't get it is because the way people, let, let's say the, the way the general public generally interact with scientific evidence is not the way scientists think they do. So when I moved into interest in, in uh, vaccine hesitancy and refusal, I approach the question actually much the way you you asked the question about food technology. I was aware of vaccine hesitancy. I was aware of how strong the scientific consensus was. I'd also just finished, uh, when I first broached this project, it was right as a big big expose had um, come out about Andrew Wakefield. Uh, There'd been an undercover investigation published in the British Medical Journal, I guess that was in 2011, and it revealed that besides all the ethics violations and problems with his notorious study linking mm-hmm. autism to the uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, uh, this expose revealed that he had also fabricated the data. And I read that, and I think I had the same attitude as many in public health and, and uh, healthcare. Oh, well, so much for that business. Like the yeah. autism uh, thesis will therefore just, just die. Yeah. And it didn't. If you watched it, you could see that it's it still persists today. It's still alive and right? kicking. <laughs> uh, more than 20 years after that uh, yeah. study. And so the, it's interesting that there are retractions and the negative uh, publicity around that work. Still, It's still there. So that got me thinking about, you know, like you, I, I said, I said, what is it going to take? What mm. is the evidence that's going to convince vaccine hesitant or that language of vaccine hesitant they were called just called anti-vaxxers yeah what's going to convince us anti-vaxxers and i started researching it so this required thinking still about the status of medical evidence but not so much internal debates in medicine like 
like I just described in evidence-based medicine, but thinking about uh, relationship between uh, scientific institutions and the public. Yes. And it, it turned out there's actually a lot of research in that. It, not not always about vaccines. Um, it's usually in sort of sociology of science and science communications, mm-hmm. often American work looking at uh, climate change mm-hmm. um, refusal or, or, or skepticism about climate change. And, and it, it sort of revealed a, a sort of way of thinking about how people how people interact with science is not that, I mean, you, you hope that they read the consensus and they say, well, good, yeah. now I get it, now I'll yeah. organize my life around that scientific evidence. But uh, in fact, people don't do that. I mean, people, especially educated people, approach um, knowledge about science with the same kind of skepticism that we're all encouraged. We learn in university, yeah. and, and scientists do themselves. We're yeah. not supposed to just take everything uh, for granted. So when people say, what's with these people? Why don't they understand the science? It means that there's something about the framework where scientific evidence is presented that is discordant with other areas of, of uh, people's lives. Yeah. That's true in climate change, around food technology, and, and vaccines too. So... When I read about scientific findings that fit with my general worldview, I happen to be in favor of vaccination. So when I read another study saying that vaccination works well um, and it's safe and effective and they actually keep finding other benefits, I say, good, I feel even better about my choice to, to vaccinate my children. Others will look at that same research and find many reasons for skepticism. And those reasons are because it doesn't, when, when things don't fit with other things you know about your lives, for example, your deep skepticism about the pharmaceutical influence yeah. on, on uh, healthcare, the belief that there's too much medicine, the belief that natural is better. So you, you're going to look at that same research evidence and you're going to find all kinds of reasons to question it. We call it motivated reasoning or, yeah. or, or, or biased assimilation of information. Yeah. And it turns out when you look at the sort of geographical clusters of who vaccinates and who doesn't, it's got a lot to do with who your social circle is. So yeah. people, uh, it's been noticed that, that people that don't vaccinate their children tend to live in sort of clusters or communities. And, it's, and, and they usually subscribe to a lifestyle that has you know, many features to yeah. it, but one of them is skepticism around vaccines. So it could be usually more sort of left-leaning alternative health communities will be more skeptical about vaccines. So you kind of do what your friends are doing. Yeah. So what I'm describing is is that something everyone, even even people that vaccinate yeah. um, their kids, often do it because that's what their friends are doing. Yes. And the social stigma around not vaccinating your kids may just not be worth it. Yeah. But what, what that goes to show is that the integration of scientific claims into your life isn't about understanding science. It's got a lot to do with how that that research is assimilated into other features of your life. So you, you need to take a much broader social view than say, why didn't they read the paper and understand yeah. it in the same way that I did? Because even the people that did read the paper and under and, and accept the claims are doing that because they've got certain socially motivating biases that include accepting the science as, as true because it doesn't challenge. So, so I mean... I, you know, I think psychologists and some economists will say confirmation bias, right? Yes. We'll we'll look for we'll look for evidence that supports our pre-existing or our, our preconceived notions. And and if I understand correctly, then 
the reverse, the, the bias assimilation also means then that we might read something and if it's contrary to what we think, we, we will work extra hard to find flaws. That's right. And there's there has been testing of yeah. that very claim. They'll take a, they'll take a, a group of people that, let's say, lean to the left and lean to the right. Politically, they'll give them the same research to look at. And you'll say, what do you, are you now more likely to let's yeah. say, vaccinate your kids? Or are you now more likely to believe that we need regulation on, on climate, on uh, CO2 emissions? Yeah. And they, the answers generally, generally reflect your worldview. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I could not, be wrong. I could be wrong. Because yeah. you said sort of the vaccine hesitancy skews a little to the left. Um, it actually does both. Vaccines are kind of interesting. Um, the the people that get the most attention in the news and are hated yeah. the most are the left uh, left leaning, generally affluent and educated. Yeah. Like think of like a West Coast California. Yeah, yeah. So, but but so but then I was going to say the right so too. so so you know if you look at climate skepticism, it tends to be more. To the right is my perception. You're so, right. so, so in that circumstance, then it's not a left or right. It is, it is probably more a cluster, mm-hmm. right? That you're, that you are, you know, we tend to have a community or a network that is similar to us. That's right. So you've actually got this is a, this is a, a, something that is distinct about uh, vaccines is that um, you've got vaccine refusers on the left and the right, and you have vaccine acceptors on the left and right. And it's for different reasons. So vaccine uh, refusers on the left will be concerned about pharmaceutical industry influence. They'll be concerned about, uh, you know, they'll they'll be motivated by alternative health and natural Mm -hmm. organic food and natural living lifestyles, while vaccine refusers on the right will be usually motivated by libertarian sentiments that the government shouldn't be able to tell me what yeah. I should do. Um, so they're, uh, they're refusing vaccines for very different reasons. Okay. And the same with the, same with the acceptors. Some people yeah. say you vaccinate because that's what your doctors tell you to. That's sort yeah. of a hierarchical appreciation that some people on the political right have. Yeah. While people on the left might like vaccines because they like the communal aspect of it, yeah. that we're all in this together. We're in this together. Right? And this is not just for me. It's for, yeah, the people around, for the people around me. Right. So my guess is the most, that we have not had a lot of success. Luckily, vaccine, most people vaccinate their kids, yes. even the people that are hesitant. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we don't want to look at that because it could, it can tip in different yes. directions. The, the interventions that have been tried, usually communications, pamphlets, making it more difficult to uh, get an exemption for, for school entry. Yeah largely don't work in changing people's mind. We, we know a lot more about what doesn't work yeah. versus what does. So the suggestions now, we're still in, at a very early stage, yeah. is the things that look most promising, at least, uh, at least uh, conceptually, are interventions that try to harness the sort of good feelings around vaccines. So things like uh, trying to approach people that, are on, that lean to the left and don't want to vaccinate try to justify vaccination as part of a natural lifestyle. So like, change the language. Yeah. Instead of making vaccination seem like um, an unnatural intervention, which is the way it's perceived now, you know, frame, frame, you could frame vaccines as training the immune system or yeah. harnessing 
the the strength that your body already yeah. has. And you already are shifting the language of vaccines to something a lot more palatable yeah. to to that group, as opposed to giving them more pamphlets and more pamphlets. Look, if this is what it does, right? And, 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 you know, I speak to producer groups about food, and they yeah. say, why can't we just tell them the science, right? right? Some of them just want to beat the science into them, and that's clearly not working. All the communications research in uh, over a variety of issues says um, if people are skeptical about the the source, uh, they're not going to just um, adopt the science. And and to be clear, it's not because they are anti-science, and it's not because they um, uh, don't understand the science. It's usually they think something is um, something is corrupt in the process. It could be that the studies are funded by people that want a certain answer. It could be that um, the studies are purposely not looking at the questions that they're interested in, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes that's actually true. So, th- so those are the reasons they're not accepting the science and, and, and integrating it into their worldview. Yeah. So, and, and one of the challenges is that different people have different reasons, so we can't sort of come up with one blanket intervention to say, oh, well, if we just did this right, right. all our problems would go away. Yeah. And, and one person's reason for for not vaccinating might be completely different from the next person's. Right. So in some of the things I've read, and and I think you've sort of gotten around around the edges of this, you've talked about sort of a distrust of scientific institutions. So that that's more than skepticism. That is, you know, you know, I'm just not sure anything you're gonna do is right. It, how do we address or or is it then someone else needs to be communicating or someone else needs to be articulating it? Or what can we do in that instance? Well, um, it turns out, at least in the case of vaccines, there is a lot of distrust of uh, scientific institutions. I've mentioned it already, but distrust around pharmaceutical industry influence. But the, but the parallel is right. perfect no, they, in food, right? You mean you could you could talk about Monsanto yeah. or other companies. The, the, yeah. the parallel is unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to add was so there's heavy distrust of the institutional structures. So yeah. we certainly, if we want to address vaccine hesitancy, there's no other way than to actually address some of the sources of mistrust at the institutional level. But another thing that is consistent in all the empirical literature is that people still trust their physicians. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a version of that for... Yeah, that that becomes a challenge for food, yeah. So they might think their doctor is part of a corrupt system, but they do trust their doctor. And um, when you have a good relationship with your physician, you think they are acting in the best interest of you and your child. So all the work that I've done is... I admit I do a lot of criticizing about how vaccine education and communications has been rolled out, but it's always meant to say we need to get the experts on board. The the people that are part of this system that is problematic are also part of part of the solution because they can communicate effectively with patients. Uh, they can address the concerns. It would be helpful if they had more time to do it. Doctors often feel rushed. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the way I read it is. It's well known that a lot of people who are vaccine refusers will will tell us, usually will start the narrative with, 
I went to my doctor with questions and they shut me down. It's usually a mother with a with a newborn or a pregnant uh, pregnant woman where you hear these stories. And there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, first of all, people should be allowed to ask questions. There's a long history of women women's concerns being dismissed by mm-hmm. people in authority. So all those things are highly problematic. Doctors need more time to be able to address mm-hmm. it. They need uh, they do often get trained in how to talk effectively to their to their patients. Unfortunately, the the uh, research into those communications efforts are are not is not good. It's not yeah. changing a lot of people's mind. But it's at least an effort that's yeah. being made. That's a start. Um, so so definitely um, hone in on the things that work, like the doctor patient relationship. Make that optimal, but also addressing financial conflicts of interest in medicine. This is the time to do it. If yeah. vaccine hesitancy is and refusal is. Uh, on the brink of making our healthcare systems collapse, which many argue is true, uh, then this is the time to start uh, addressing some of those conflicts of interest. Pretty much our regulation is lax. You know, many industry partners work very well and do good work, but it's when they don't and, and how long it takes to uncover that kind of corruption that to be, you know, to be fair to any vaccine hesitant parent, they don't know if this is the next uh, Vioxx case. They don't know if this is the next well, it, scandal, and, right? And, and it's interesting. One of the things that I've always perceived is academics don't always do a good job of communicating more broadly. Right. We do a great job of communicating to each other at conferences and through peer-reviewed journals. And you have these, then you have these outlier incidents with, you know, data fabrication and sort of thing. And then they become the highlight mm-hmm. and it becomes people's reality. I, they, they don't have a good sense of how much of it is real. And, you know, I think we see this to a large degree in, in another parallel in the food industry and animal welfare. You know, if you go on to most farms in this country, the treatment of animals is amazing but nobody knows that. And then we get videos where there are horrific treatments and that becomes the context within which people, the the lens through which people see the whole industry. And I think that's probably true. What can we do differently? Uh, I would say one thing to do is tighten up regulation. I mean, a system would still work fine if you had a few bad apples, they were caught quickly and it was corrected. Uh, The concern that's been... I think this has been well captured in in social science research of vaccine-hesitant parents is that they think their regulatory arm is broken, that there isn't enough done to, first of all, make sure these kind of of incidences don't happen. But once it's done, it takes too long to fix the issue. So a lot of the big scandals that come out in medicine often involve years and years of cover-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, FDA or, or Health Canada being being ineffective in able to, in being able to actually regulate the industry, uh, a general belief that industry gets uh, too much power, whether whether as polit- through political lobbying or just because our regulatory system is mm-hmm. is underfunded. So you, know, you take the average person who says, "I just want to do what's safe and right for for my mm-hmm. family." And they feel powerless to be able to actually make good decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sympathetic, even though I am a strong supporter of vaccines. I can't help being sympathetic to uh, vaccine hesitant and refusing parents who 
who, as I read, as I read the situation, care about their kids and they want to do what's best for them, but they have trouble operationalizing yeah. that desire because they don't know who to believe. And I, so I also think that if people are, are, are going to unsavory sources like internet or, yeah. or celebrity views, it's, it's out of desperation. It's not because they've got somehow got some um, misunderstanding that celebrities know better. They're just, there's something about the system in place that does not generate the kind of trust yeah. to, to follow to, to follow what's being recommended. And that might not just be scientific institutions. There's also evidence there's some distrust of the regulatory framework, right? right? Because some of the failures. And, yeah. and so yeah. the challenge might be bigger in food because there's no physician there who can mediate or moderate yes. that. So I, I find this really fascinating. I'm looking forward to actually chatting some more. And, and I know we're hoping to do some work together on food in the future. Mm -hmm. I think I've taken the time I've, I said I was going to take. Is there anything else that I should have asked you and I didn't, or a point that, that, that you'd like to make before we wrap up? A point that I'd like to make is that widespread public distrust of science is not is, is often seen as a, as a problem with the public for the reasons that we talked about, whether, whether it's, you know, well, it's believed to be due to a lack of understanding of science or science denialism or, or something like that. But it actually needs to be understood as a problem for scientific governance. Science, scientific institutions need to do many things. Most prominently, generate the best science and the best recommendations for public welfare and, and yeah. public safety. But part of that work needs to include generating and sustaining the public trust because public institutions around food and, and medicine in democratic societies can't operate if they don't have the public trust. So this is this is a problem for everyone and it's actually scientific institutions at this point that need to do a little bit of self-reflection on what are what are the mechanisms in place and how does that translate into having the public trust that they so desperately need. Yeah, that's excellent. That's an excellent point. And, and, and I'm going to be guilty of confirmation bias here because <laughs> I, I often say that the war on science is a self-inflicted wound. Right. And to a significant degree, the, the, the scientific community has done it to themselves in terms of how they've, how they've communicated, what they've communicated. You know, perhaps, you know, the fact that we don't publish no result mm -hmm. type things, all of those things. Uh, become factors in in that distrust that you've argued right. uh, that is there and, and make it more difficult for us to articulate the strength of good results mm -hmm. because those are the ones that we focus on. So yes. thank you very much. It was a, a very fascinating discussion and I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. wrap up another episode of Food Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Food Focus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, 
If you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast, as this helps other people find us. So, thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it, and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.